This episode is going to change the way that you think about your breathing forever. Today, I'm going to be speaking to the founder of the Oxygen Advantage Method, Patrick Macchion, and we're going to talk about how you've probably been breathing too much, how you can naturally boost EPO free and legally, how you can achieve high altitude training with no equipment and without leaving your home, plus much, much more. Two things before we get into the show. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be extremely grateful if you could take the time to rate and review the show, particularly if you're on iTunes or using it on the on the podcast app on your iPhone, then it's super, super easy. It takes about 30 seconds. Search for BJJ Strength Podcast in the podcast app. Subscribe if you haven't already. Scroll down past the episodes. Hit the hit the star rating, whatever you want to give me, and then go a little bit further down to to rate and review, uh, to write a review. I'm going to read out something from Jimmy Diaz. Uh, Jimmy says, practical advice on how to improve or supplement your jujitsu. Jimmy, appreciate that review. And if you want to get a shout out, guys, take the time. It literally takes about 30 seconds to put a review up and I'll make sure to get you a shout out. The other thing before we get into the show If you're looking for a strength and conditioning program that's pre-built, ready to follow step-by-step for the jiu-jitsu athlete, that's going to complement how you train jiu-jitsu and it's going to help rather than hinder your training and do it in a way that all you need is a very small amount of equipment like a pull-up bar and a kettlebell, then head over to bjjstrength.com. Take a look at the foundation strength program and take a look at the 15-minute strength program. See what people have been saying about the strength training there and give it a go for yourselves. Okay, guys, with that, let's get on with it. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the BJJ Strength Podcast. Helping you be your best physically on the mats and off the mats with your host bjj black belt and physical optimization specialist lawrence griffiths Hi guys, welcome to the latest episode of the BJJ Strength Podcast. I'm I'm very excited today. I've got my pa- Patrick McCone, um, and he's going to correct me on the pronunciation. Um, but he's he's the founder of Oxygen Advantage, which is I'm a little bit lost to words to to, 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 you know, to talk about the program because it's had such an impact on my breathing in such a short period of time, and it's actually transformed. The way that I look at breathing on you know on a day to day basis and from sports performance, particularly with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and it's a method of uh, breath reduction training that can improve your sports performance, improve your health, can improve stress, can improve sleep, can improve anxiety, and we're going to dive into the details of exactly how the program works throughout the show. But Patrick is you know a, a world leading expert in, in breath training, is the author of. I think nine plus books when I counted and Patrick you'll have to correct me on that he's helped thousands of people transform their lives uh, in terms of you know health asthma and but also you know work with a lot of athletes and you know some you know really interesting results in terms of um, sports performance and Patrick is joining us today all the way from Galway Island Um, so Patrick hello thank you for coming on the show hi Lawrence 
great to be here thanks very much yeah absolutely absolutely um so let's let's get the pronunciation of your name right let's, let's do it one more time <laughs> so it's McKeown. perfect thank you yeah thank you it's no worries so just to let people know kind of you know um before we ask patrick to introduce himself a little bit um how this interview came about i would i just finished finished reading the book oxygen advantage and i went through and patrick actually has his email in there and i thought i, I just wanted to send him a note to say thank you for the impact that that you know the training has already had and is continuing to have my training and patrick was like great let's let's talk about it let's get on the podcast let, let, let's speak um and i was kind of you know blown away actually by by some of the by some of the work but i'm i'm not i'm not going to talk about oxygen advantage i want to let patrick do that so patrick just uh you know let let people know a little bit about yourself say hello mm -hmm. um it goes back my journey with brett it goes back about 20 years or so and i had my own issues i was a chronic asthmatic um so as a result of having asthma it's it's very common to have nasal obstruction so my nose was always stuffy and because my nose was always stuffy you tend to breathe through an open mouth and when you breathe through an open mouth, your sleep is affected. And also when you breathe through an open mouth, you breathe faster and you're more likely to have anxiety because nasal breathing is diaphragmatic, breathing is slow breathing. So when we talk about breathing, everybody seems to have different ideas about breathing. And ultimately it's, it's what, what works to improve the oxygen uptake in the blood, the oxygen delivery to the cells. And what else can you do to challenge the body? to really lower blood oxygen saturation. Like, you, you know, your, your fighters are talking about stimulating anaerobic glycolysis and they train hard and oftentimes their overtraining can set them up for injury so that they may not always make competition um, or they may not be at their best because they haven't had a recovery pre-competition. Pre but in terms of breath holding, we can completely disturb the blood acid base balance well beyond what you could do during sprinting well beyond what you would do during high intensity interval training. So we can stimulate, there's two aspects to it. One is looking at a, well, looking at a, a person's breathing, an athlete's breathing. Are they breathing using their chest? Are they breathing using the diaphragm? How fast are they breathing? Are their natural pause? Is the breathing regular? And why would we want to know all about that? Because diaphragmatic breathing is functional breathing and functional breathing means functional movement. So the diaphragm is not just the main muscle for breathing. Our diaphragm also performs other functions such as stabilization of the spine, good motor control, um, improved ventilation perfusion, which basically means that there's a greater uptake of oxygen in the blood. And also diaphragmatic breathing linked to nasal breathing. You've got more normal gas called carbon dioxide. You also utilize a gas called nitric oxide. So there's a lot going on with breathing using the diaphragm. But let's look at some guys with MMA and these guys are, I think it's a, absolutely a tremendous sport and it's apt for challenging um, and using breathing techniques to challenge the individual so that the body makes adaptations. But when I look at, you know, MMA fighters in interview, you can see when they're doing a press conference, you can see where they're breathing. I can see it on screen. Look to see how those guys are breathing. Are they using their chest? Any guy who's using his chest predominantly, or gal, who's using their chest predominantly to breathe during rest, are more likely to gas out during competition. So I'd be saying the first thing is, you know, if we have breathing pattern disorders during rest, they're not going to fix themselves going into a fight. 
and you know even the ability grappling you know in terms of stopping breathing etc your ability to to train that and i think it can be trained um and i've worked with thousands of individuals who've trained their breathing and we've seen results and also you can measure it you know we use simple breath toll times one is called the bolt score the body oxygen level test and that gives us an idea of the onset and endurance of breathlessness and it simply involves taking a normal breath in through your nose a normal breath out through your nose pinching your nose with your fingers and timing it in seconds how long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe so it's not a it's not a length of time that you can hold your breath for it's not a maximum breath toll time it's a comfortable breath toll time in other words you exhale out through your nose normally so you breathe out through your nose normally you pinch your nose you time it until you feel the first definite desire to breathe and that's your bolt score and anybody less than 25 seconds they highly you know it's a high risk that they have breathing pattern disorders mine was so 25 seconds is the cut off sorry yeah mine was 16 seconds when i first started with the book sure <laughs> and it's normal I've, I've we've had olympic athletes competed in london um and their breath hold time was 12 seconds wow. now you know and i've also we have olympic athletes um, training now for the upcoming Tokyo Olympics and they started off they were pretty good at, they were about 20-25 seconds and we're pushing them up to 40 seconds so the ultimate goal with an athlete is to achieve 40 seconds of a breath yeah. hold yeah so I want to get into the bolt score absolutely but just to kind of reiterate the importance of breathing I think you've got a really good quote or, or paragraph in your book where you say that we can live without food for a you know a week without water yes. for a few days but only yeah. minutes with oxygen yeah 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 and it's airway is king you know how we breathe is most important but nobody seems to know everybody has an idea of quality of air you know if you're, if you're an athlete and you're working in a polluted environment pollution can ad- pollution can adversely affect your performance and especially at an elite level fractions of a percent mm-hmm. you know can make all the difference but nobody looks at quantity Whereas if you have an athlete that's mouth breathing, any of your guys or any of your listeners that are breathing through through an open mouth during sleep, they wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. They're often more likely to go to the bathroom or restroom during the middle of the night, and they're waking up sluggish. Now, there's six to eight hours whereby they've been breathing harder than what they should do, and that's actually going to contribute to their degree of breathlessness during physical exercise. Because ultimately... One of the main, the main stimulus to breathe is a gas called carbon dioxide. And we need to know the body's response to this gas CO2, because when you move your muscles, your production of carbon dioxide increases tenfold, up to tenfold. This is the stimulus to breathe, and the body breathes to get rid of carbon dioxide. But if you can, if you can handle, uh, if you've got a reduced response, if you've got a, you know, if you can tolerate a strong buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood it means that your breathing is going to be lighter now elite athletes will tend to have a reduced ventilatory response to co2 in the blood but not all and one of you know when researchers talk about they'll say that the only way to change your body's response to carbon dioxide in the blood which is the stimulus to breathe is by extreme training now that's not the case um training can change your breathing but probably the only sport to do so is swimming 
Um, so breathing will often lag behind, whereas you'll have you know improved cardio and you'll have improved fitness levels, but you might necessarily have improved breathing. And the diaphragm is prone to fatigue. 50% of athletes are prone to diaphragmatic fatigue. And if the diaphragm is fatiguing, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the diaphragm. So you can think of guys, and they might be in the eighth or ninth round, and the next thing is their legs are going jelly. Why are their legs going jelly? Is that because of a buildup of hydrogen ion, you know, coming from the, the muscles that's not getting oxidized because there's not enough oxygen getting to the muscle? Or is it because the diaphragm is fatigued because their upper chest breathing for too hard all the time? And as a result, the diaphragm now is stealing blood from the legs, or it could be a combination of both. Um, but that's why we want to tr we want to train breathing. I see it a lot when I train jujitsu, and I, I work with a lot of people where they say, "Oh, I gas out all the time," and and then I ask I ask yes. them, "Okay, what's your resting heart rate?" And their resting heart rate can be, you know, in the low fifties, which for most people is mm. you know very very healthy, particularly yeah, it's good. And then yeah, you know, working with these people, and when I train with people, I see how much tension people carry in their faces and in the neck, which I mm -hmm. I put to a result of the chest breathing. And that it's not on top of, you know, the, the physical performance, I think the psychological state it puts you in as well is you're not processing information in the same way yeah. and you're not smoothing your actions and not smoothing your decision making. So I think it goes beyond performance as well. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. There's a clear connection between the mind and the breath. Um, mouth breathing, if you were to go very back to the basics, if you're sleeping with your mouth open, doing light physical training with your mouth open, breathing through your mouth periodically throughout the day, having a regular breathing, that's going to hold you back. Mouth breathing is directly linked to the upper chest muscles, the accessory muscles, but a mouth breath is a faster breath, and a faster breath is more agitative to the mind. And basically, Lawrence, like when we're talking about the mind, we're talking about the ability of the, the mind to stay focused under extreme pressure. And that's a great trait with elite athletes. Not only elite athletes, but you're talking about say Navy SEALs, um, Olympians have it. You know, to reach the highest level, you, you, you don't just need to have mastery over the body, but we also need to have mastery over the mind. And for two and a half thousand years, mankind has been following their breath. But it's also, we have to look at the physiology. If you're in an agitated state physiologically by as a result of mouth breathing, the mind is going to be in that state too because even to give you an example, researchers at Stanford Medical School in March of last year, if you were to Google slow breathing Stanford Medical School, they identified a new structure in the brain in the locus corollis and they basically said that this structure is spying on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, this structure is relaying symptoms of agitation to the rest of the brain. But if you breathe slowly, this structure is relaying symptoms of calm to the rest of your brain. Well, if you breathe through your nose, you naturally will breathe slower because your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing during the day that's two to three times that of your mouth. So throughout our evolution, our ancestors, you know, if you go back 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 50,000 years, whatever, our ancestors were innate nasal breathers. The only time that they would have mouth breathed is fight or flight is a high stress response. And now we know that 50% of children are mouth breathers and nobody seems to be telling these kids any different. We also know that kids with mouth breathing, they're more likely to have sleep disorder breathing. They don't wake up 
you know, with the same amount of energy. They're waking up fatigued. They're these kids are required to go in and sit in a school desk, sit at a school desk for four, maybe five hours per day and concentrate. Well, it's not going to happen. You know, we need to be we need to be getting the awareness out there of the importance of nasal breathing for everybody. Um, but especially in sports performance and the ability of, of, you know, that muscle, the diaphragm, that performs a lot of functions in the body, including redistribution of blood um, throughout the body, may also play a role in lymphatic drainage. But I would say that the biggest ones um, for MMA is a higher oxygen uptake in the blood and a higher oxygen delivery to the cells. Mm. So why do you think we've lost that connection with nasal breathing? I think it's just a combination. If you look at our lifestyle, can you imagine even how our how our grandfathers were? You know, I'm here in the west of Ireland. If you were living here 50 years ago, you wouldn't be sitting in front of a laptop. No. You were out working hard physically. You were moving your muscles. You were eating natural foods. You weren't under long-term stress. They didn't have massive mortgages. They weren't talking all day. Um, so there's many factors that are changing our breathing patterns, but it seems to be it's one of those things our breathing is going to change as modern civilization, as civilization becomes modernized. So, you know, we really do see changes. Dr. John Mew is an, is an orthodontist from the United Kingdom, and he's been looking at craniofacial structures for about 50 years. Now, his 90th birthday is this Friday. So we have a party in London. That is, he is a castle, and... We have a we've a, we celebrate his 90th birthday this Friday. But basically, he's also worked in anthropology. He unearthed skulls back 400 years ago, and he found that the skulls that were unearthed from upper middle class graves that they had narrow facial structures. If you have a narrow facial structure, you're more likely to be a mouth breather. And the reason being is because during nasal breathing during childhood. So if you if you're growing up with, as a kid with your mouth closed. Your mouth is closed, your lips are together, and your tongue is in the roof of the mouth. And the pressures exerted by the tongue and the roof of the mouth are helping to develop the jaws. They're pushing the jaws forward on the face, but they're also widening the shape of the face. A strong male has strong jaws, and strong jaws is a good airway. So a good airway, and I'm talking about the upper airway here. So you're talking about the back of the nose. You're talking about the back of the, the mouth. And you're talking about the throat. A good airway, the diameter of a good airway is the size of your tongue. Now, can you imagine? I, have, I was mouth breathing for 20 years. My nose is bent because my maxilla, my top jaw isn't forward enough. My mandible is set back as well. So I don't have a good airway because my mm. jaw is set back on the airway. And of course, my tongue is going to be falling into the airway. So I wouldn't reach elite athletes. I wouldn't even try. I know I could never have done it. Um, and again, these we have to be looking at kids. If we want to be creating elite athletes, we don't do it when they're 15 years of age. Mm. It's contributed to when they are two, three, four, five, and six years of age and upwards. Um, because the development of the face and the airway is important, not just for athleticism. These individuals with good mm. airway are also generally better looking. And they're better looking because their face is developed the way it should have developed, the way nature is intended to. So breathing, you know, and the reason I kind of bring this in, I know it's not going to be relevant to your, to your, to your fighters, but, you know, maybe you're, some of your fighters have children or maybe at some point they're going to have kids. And I would say to any individual, 
with, with children, it's, a, it's absolutely imperatively important that we get them breathing through the nose because it's a simple thing. And there's, you know, it, there is an increased awareness of it. I've seen the last three years, a lot has changed. Um, I had an orthodontist here today with me. I just dropped him off at Galway train station, Dr. Bill Hang. And Dr. William Hang, he's based in the Gora Hills in, in California. And he's been looking at the airway specifically as an orthodontist. And what he is doing is reestablishing the growth patterns in a child's face, but also in an adult's face in order to maintain an open airway. Um, so when he's looking at straightening teeth, he's looking at the airway first and the teeth second. Now, most orthodontists, they can, well, not, I'm not going to say most, I'm not going to tar everybody with the same brush, but many orthodontists, they will look at teeth and they will say that the teeth are, you know, the teeth are too big. So the child has inherited the dad's big teeth and the mom's small jaw. So the teeth are too big. So let's remove some teeth to make room for the rest of the teeth. So to straighten teeth. Whereas a functional orthodontist or an, an orthodontist who is con concerned with airway, they will say that the jaw is too small for the existing teeth. The teeth are fine. The jaw is too small because the kid was thumb sucking, using a pacifier or mouth breathing. So they'll say, let's make room for the teeth by expanding the jaw. And ultimately, we want to expand the jaw to make room for teeth as opposed to just extracting teeth. I've started doing this with my my oldest daughter. She's She'll be three next week. And yes. when we walk in, I'll say to her, oh, breathe, breathe through your yes. nose. And she does it. She'll, she'll listen to me. And yeah. Yeah. It, it was fascinating. I'd, I'd read a study about six months ago before I got into, into your book. And it talked mm -hmm. about one of the indicators of athletic performance was broad, wide faces. And when yes. I read that, I connected the dots. And the other thing that I would yes. say is that you know, people may be listening and thinking this is predominantly a male thing because of testosterone and how that changes the shape of the face. But I was watching mm. while reading this book, the World Rugby Sevens was on. And these are yeah. some, of, some of the best athletes in the world, hands down. And you can see with, yeah. with the top women as well, they have a good, you know, a good strong facial structure yes. as well. It's not yeah. just a male yeah. thing. No, it's not. And an attractive woman's face, basically, we don't want long faces. That's ultimately it. You know, you want to have the face, you want to have the height to, to width ratio and proportion. Um, and an attractive female face is a nasal breather face. Just It's just, it comes back to whether it's man or woman, mouth breathing doesn't do any of us yeah. any good. Yeah, it was it was interesting reading that, and now I'm my my youngest is only eight months, so it's a little bit harder to control her. But she, I'll, I'll try to pinch her lips. Yeah, but you know what, it's it's in time, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be totally obsessive about it. Or, but I think having yeah. an awareness as a parent, and you're watching the kids, it, it's a great having that awareness there that you can encourage them. <clears throat> you can encourage them to make the shift to nasal breathing. A lot of my work, like, and this week or tomorrow or Wednesday, I fly to London, and then. From London, I fly to Rome, and I speak at two conferences, and it's all about sleep. Now, again, it ties into, you have an athlete, or you can have an athlete, they're training hard, and they're sleeping there with a mat wide open, and they're waking up tired, and they're not going to focus. And not only that, they can have pre-match anxiety, so pre-game pre anxiety, so their mind is already anxious anyway, going to sleep, but now they're, they're sleeping with their mouth open, so they have a double whammy. Um, so I think to really make mm -hmm. a warrior, you have to look at sleep, you have to look at focus of the mind, you have to look at functional breathing, 
And you also have to look at what can we do to the body to get the body to make those adaptations, you know, to disturb the blood acid base balance, to increase the buffering capacity, to delay lactic acid and fatigue. And that can be all changed and it can be changed quickly. Like I'm talking about four weeks. Um, some of the studies looking at disturbing the blood acid base balance by exhaling and holding your breath. It took four weeks to make adaptations. And I'll give you one paper by Warren's. It was published this year. They looked at rugby union um, and they were elite. They're 18 years of age and, you know, they're professional footballers, they're professional capacity. They measured their repeated sprintability until exhaustion. So exhaustion was when they couldn't maintain 85% of their, their peak. Or I think maybe they took the average over three, but basically 85%. So they had them do a 40 meter dash and it was less than the 30, maybe a 30 second recovery and a 40 meter dash, 30 second recovery, 40 meter dash, 30 second recovery. And this was pre. These elite athletes could accomplish nine repetitions before exhaustion. Then they had them do four weeks of breath holding. So they replaced some of their sessions, the 40 meter dashes. They got rid of two sessions per week of high intensity interval training and they replaced two with breath holding and they added on, I think maybe two more sessions of breath holding. So they got them to do the 40 meter dash by breath holding. They practiced that for four weeks and post their ability with repeated sprint ability had increased from nine to 14 before exhaustion. 14. 14. Wow. Now you can think of somebody going into a ring and it's an all out effort. And then you've got a very brief recovery and it's an all out effort and a brief recovery. And there's things that you can be doing to, to increase that and to recover quickly, even when you're in the ring, you know, like I just say, if you're warming up, we, we want to focus the mind first. And I would ask athletes to focus on their breath, bring their attention inwards for 20 minutes and slow down their breathing. And all that we're trying to do here is reduce anxiety, still the mind, improve focus. But now the athlete is too relaxed. So I have them do 20 minutes of relaxation with focus and changing their breath. Now they're too relaxed. So I get them to do six repetitions of strong breath holds. And this takes them out of this relaxation into sympathetic, because when you do a strong breath hold, you increase blood flow to the brain. So if you were fatigued and you want to get more blood flow to the brain, hold your breath, because as you hold your breath, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and carbon hold dioxide. It, hold it. Hold it on an out breath. On an out breath. Exhale, exhale yes. and then, yeah. then hold. Yeah. It's always it's always much more effective because you get a stronger effect in terms of blood gases when you breathe out and hold. Because if you breathe in and hold, you've got so much oxygen coming into the lungs. So you, you're not necessarily going to have a hypoxic effect. And what we want to do is we want to have a hypoxic effect. We want to use breath holding to lower the blood oxygen saturation. But we also want to use breath holding on the exhalation to increase carbon dioxide. So pre and pre-match, I have them do 20 minutes of relaxation, six strong breath holds, but now they're very alert, but they're too acidic. And then I get them to do 30, 30 seconds of hard breathing, super ventilation. And that gets rid of the acids, the carbon dioxide, and then they go out. And if they were to do, you know, around and then in between recoveries is 30 seconds of hard breathing during each round and using the 30 seconds of hard breathing during each round to get rid of acid 
to allow their breathing to, to, to recover quicker. So the 30 seconds in each round, do you mean between the rounds? or In between, between the, rounds. the rounds. Okay, so it's a, yes. it's a yeah. really hard... <sighs> yes, mm. yeah, yeah. And what I would do is don't wait until competition to try yeah. it out. Now, the first thing that I'd say is, is increase your bolt score first. So there's two tests that we use. One is bolt score, which is the body oxygen level test, and that measures the onset and endurance of breathlessness. But the second test is called the maximum breathlessness test. I want to see what's the maximum tolerance of breathlessness that an athlete can withstand. So I have them breathe in through their nose, breathe out through their nose, pinch their nose, hold their breath, and start walking at a relatively fast pace. And count how many sec sorry, count how many steps can you walk for before you're absolutely, you know, you can't do it for any more. So it's to measure what's the maximum tolerance of breathlessness. And a good athlete, I want to get them up to about a hundred paces. Now that sounds a lot, but we we will have really good athletes, they'll tend to start off at about 60 paces. If you have an athlete with breathing pattern disorders, such as and they may have they might have asthma. They might have bronchoconstriction, you know, they've got narrowing of the airways or a tight chest. They may, they may only hold their breath for 30 paces. But if you were to practice that exercise even twice or twice a day, two sets a day, five repetitions, so you're doing 10 repetitions throughout the day, your ability to do a maximum breath hold will increase by 10 extra paces each week. So if you were starting off at 50 today, Within three weeks, you will have achieved your upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness. Well, three to four weeks, whether it's 80 to 100. Say even we were going to 90, pretty good. 100 would be the absolute goal. Yeah, I've been measuring my boat score over the last six to eight weeks, but I haven't been measuring the max breathlessness. So that's, that's, that's a really interesting one. And it, it, it feels like we've got two main measures in terms of cardiovascular fitness, the most commonly used today. It's going to be resting heart rate and it's going to be VO2 max. Yes. But it almost feels like these yes. uh, these additional two, the boat score and the max breathlessness should almost become standards over, yes. you know, over the near future. Yes. Well, there is going to be a relationship between both. If you're looking at VO2 max, um, Individuals with a strong ventilatory response to carbon dioxide will tend to have a lower VO2 max. So when you improve or when you reduce your ventilatory response to CO2, you should have an increased VO2 max. Um, what that means is basically if you can tolerate a high buildup of CO2 in the blood before you have to resume breathing, it will improve your, your VO2 max if you can improve that. So it's basically doing all of the exercises that we're doing. The purpose of the exercises are to reduce the ventilatory response to CO2. And when you have a reduced ventilatory response to CO2, it should translate into a higher VO2 max. The second aspect that it may increase VO2 max is because when you do a strong breath hold and all it takes is about 30 seconds and you have a splenic contraction and your spleen is it's an organ located underneath your diaphragm, but it's your blood bank and it contains 8% of your, your blood count. But basically, the, the hematocrit in the spleen is very high quality. So when I'm talking about high quality, I'm talking about oxygen carrying capabilities. Normally, in a female, hematocrit would be 36% to 44%. And in a male, it's about 40% to 50%. But the hematocrit in the spleen is 80%. So 80% of the blood in the spleen is carrying oxygen. 
So it's really good quality. Now, if you do strong breath holds, your spleen will contract and it releases that carrying oxygen carrying red blood cells into circulation. And that's also a reason that we do the strong breath holds prior to a game. Now, a splenic contraction will last for up to 10 minutes. So you'd want to be doing them just prior to going out. And in that then, you've got improved aerobic carrying capacity. And that also translates into improved VO2 max. Now, there's another aspect from doing strong breath holding. In that when you hold your breath and you lower your blood oxygen saturation, the kidneys become hypoxic and the liver to a lesser extent. And as a result of that, a hormone erythropoietin, which is EPO, that comes, that's being released from the kidneys. And this will send a message. It's a, it's a hormone. It's sending a message to the bone marrow to mature red blood cells. And red blood cells are oxygen carrying, you know, capabilities. So in some studies, we see that hemoglobin and hematocrit have increased as a result of doing breath holding. In other studies, we haven't. So we can't always say with absolute certainty that, you know, from, from erythropoietin that it's going to increase it. But we can. It, there's some studies that do show it happens. I think it's a little bit like high altitude. Not all athletes respond to high altitude. But you're not going up to high altitude. It's not just about going up there to improve aerobic capacity. Like what else happens when you do a strong breath hold? You're improving respiratory muscle strength because the respiratory center in the brain is noticing that you've stopped breathing, your, your oxygen levels are dropping, your carbon dioxide levels are increasing, and the respiratory center is repeatedly sending messages to the breathing muscles to breathe. So your diaphragm is contracting. So you're adding an extra load onto the diaphragm and you're tiring it out, and this will improve respiratory muscle strength. So you want to have good, strong intercostals, you know, the external intercostals, the, the, which is the meat in between the ribs, that when you're taking your breath in, that it's the external intercostals that's pulling the, 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 the ribs outwards, and the, ex, sorry, the external is pulling the ribs outwards to breathe in, and the internal is on the breath out, which is the passive part of the breath. But you can, you can strengthen your um, breathing muscles, but also for airways, like we've been using this with kids since 2002 to help open up their airways. You can decongest your nose by holding your breath. If your nose is stuffy and you're breathing through your mouth, you're twice as likely to have sleep problems. And you could say, well, where is sleep coming into this? Where is the mind coming into this? But ultimately, fights are won or lost by a small fraction. And the higher you go up the, the ladder, you know, the less the margin for error. So you really want to be tapping into all, whatever can give you the advantage. And the one thing about the breath is it's simple exercise that can be brought into your normal training. And you're not just getting one benefit from it. You know, the benefit can be, can be varied and a wide application. I've been talking about the importance of breathing with everyone that I train and coach for the last yes. five, five, six years. And Good it's... I know we, we were talking before we started recording, you, we, you've been working with Lard Hamilton, and yes. I think I heard him say a quote that the breath is everything. Everything begins and ends yes. with, with, with the breath. And it, there's, there's, so many, there's so many permutations for proper breathing that we could, we could probably sit here for the next three days talking about it, and happily so. But, but one of, the, one of the things that I wanted to kind of really point out is and this was this was surprising to me. I'd been talking about the importance of breathing, talking about the importance of nose breathing and breathing from the diaphragm, 
what I didn't quite understand and really started to notice when I put in put into practice some of the techniques in oxygen advantage is reducing the breathing and the mis- misinterpretation of a deep breath. Yes. A, a deep breath just may, basically means using your diaphragm. Um, when, when we look at a normal individual, if I was to measure somebody's blood, blood oxygen saturation, and I use a little device, it's a pulse oximeter. Which, which one do you use? I use Nonan. Now, I, I don't totally recommend them, to be honest with you. Um, and the reason being is because they're breaking a lot on me because I have a lot of them and I just find that they're not as resilient that they're a little bit more fragile that's my own just my own take on them now the reason being is because these ones here are about $200 each and when I buy them I'm buying 20 20 or so I'll always have 20 in stock um, but if I'm losing three or four a month it can be a costly endeavor now you can buy the cheaper ones for say $30 whatever on Amazon the only problem is they're not as responsive. Yeah, that's all the problem I've got. Um, so the Nonin is the better one in terms of accuracy. Other ones that I have would be the go-to, which also are Nonin. And these seem these seem to be better. They seem to be able to take, you know, somebody drops them. Or, and these weren't even being dropped, yeah. but they were breaking. Um, so that's the only thing I'd say in it. However, I think it's useful to have a pulse oximeter because if, if you want to witness one thing, two things. One is... There's a little infrared light yep. in it. You see the kind of infrared light there, and it's also got a red light. And basically, that's that's monitoring how fully loaded is your hemoglobin with oxygen. So hemoglobin is inside in the red blood cells, and it's carrying your oxygen. And it's looking at what's the percentage and what's the total carrying capacity of your hemoglobin. So normally, it's about 95 to 99%. So the human being, during normal circumstances, their blood is almost fully saturated with oxygen. Typically, it's about 97 to 98% um, SpO2. Now, we have a belief that the harder we breathe, that the more oxygen uptake there is in the blood. It doesn't increase your SpO2 by breathing hard. But what it does is, breathing hard will get rid of carbon dioxide. And the problem with this is, if you're breathing hard and you're getting rid of carbon dioxide, your blood vessels are constricting, but also as you lose carbon dioxide, the affinity between hemoglobin and oxygen strengthens. So I'll just repeat that. Hemoglobin releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide. Because if you think of it like when we move our muscles, our muscles, they generate heat and they generate carbon dioxide. And it's the increased heat and increased carbon dioxide it causes what's called a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But basically, red blood cells release oxygen to the cells to be used for you know, production into energy, for fueling the metabolism in the presence of carbon dioxide. Now, if we have athletes that are continuously going around during the day and they're breathing hard and they're breathing hard at night and they feel it's good to be breathing hard, that's not going to help because that's really going to mess up your breathing. And it's also then going to translate into increased breathlessness during physical exercise. Who, which athletes would you, you know, when you're looking at health, you're looking at light breathing. An athlete with light breathing, if they can push themselves hard during physical exercise and they can maintain relatively light breathing, that's a pretty good indicator of fitness. And it's not that, what I would say that the advantage to this is that you can achieve a better performance with the same amount of effort because 
there is an energy cost associated with breathing. Patrick, yes? but Patrick, really yeah. quickly, I think your audio cut out slightly for about 15 seconds. And so maybe if you repeat that point, we don't miss it. Yeah, no problem. Um, so when when we're looking at when we're looking at breathing, say in an individual, if if when I see somebody train or I see themselves pushing themselves hard, an individual who can push themselves hard with relatively light breathing, that's a good sign of fitness because you know that they've got good reserve there. Whereas if you see an individual who's gassing out too soon, or they tell me that they're plateauing. Or, for example, no matter how hard they're training, they just seem to can't get beyond it. Or if they stop doing physical training, they decondition pretty quickly. I remember I was talking to one strength and conditioning coach, premiership footballer, um, strength and conditioning coach. And basically, we were talking about this. And he was saying, well, when we see an athlete on the football field gassing out too soon, we put it down to lack of conditioning. Mm. It's poor conditioning. But I'm saying that these, these guys are all undergoing the same training regime. So you have your entire tra- team, um, you know, the entire, all, every player has got a very similar training protocol. How is it that some of them are deconditioning more than others? The ones that are deconditioning, you should be looking at their breathing. So even during the week, I was working with a triathlete, looking at his breathing. And this guy was a guy, yeah, he's, he's not, he's not, you know, but he's a recreational athlete and he keeps himself pretty fit. Fast breathing during rest, mouth breathing. And I'm saying you, there's no way you're performing to the best of your ability because you're breathing so hard and you're consuming oxygen. There is an oxygen cost associated with breathing. We need to, the, the lungs, the, the breathing muscles, they all need their own supply of oxygen to the point that if you're sitting down at rest, you're, 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 the oxygen cost associated with breathing is about 2 to 3% of your VO2, your oxygen consumption. During moderate physical exercise, it's about 3 to 6%. During hard physical exercise, it's about 10, maybe 12%. So you think of your oxygen consumption, 10% of that is going to support the breathing Mm. muscles. Now, that's why we want to have breathing efficiency. And I suppose really what it's about is we want athletes to achieve a higher performance with the same amount of effort. So if you can improve breathing efficiency, it means that your performance will increase with the same amount of effort that you were putting in before. Let's... I want to talk about breathe light to breathe right, but first, what I want to uh, I want to pull out some stats that I've been recording myself. So I've been using a pulse oximeter, and it's it gets quite fascinating actually to see the oxygen saturation drop. But what was I think the lowest I got to? This may have been an incorrect reading. I hit seventy four to seventy eight percent when I was cycling, but quite easily and quite regularly, I would get it down into the mid to high eighties. And one of the things that I noticed is just from two minutes of skipping or jumping rope, using using the kind of the breathe, breathe light to breathe right methods, just two minutes only, I was able to get to an 85% oxygen saturation. And I think that's the equivalent of a four or 5,000 feet altitude, uh, roughly. And my heart rate... I can't remember totally off the top of my head. Uh, I think it's more. I think it's four to 5,000 meters. So you're talking about... You're, you're talking about maybe thirteen to 15,000 feet. Now, if, if you think of Mount Everest, Mount Everest is 8,848 8, meters. It's about 29,000 feet high. I flew across the USA there about two weeks ago. And, well, I departed Toronto and arrived in, in Los Angeles. And the captain told us that they were flying at 31,000 feet. 
Now, I looked down. 31,000 feet is, is a hell of a way up. <laughs> Mount Everest is 29,000 feet. So it's almost the, the height of a domestic plane traveling in the United States, which is absolutely incredible yeah. because we can never fathom that. Now, if you're at Mount Everest, your blood oxygen saturation will probably drop down to about 60, 55% SpO2. Mm. That's huge drop. However, when we do breath holding and we're doing the simulation of altitude, and it, all it is is simply wearing the pulse oximeter, take a normal breath in, normal breath out, you hold your breath and start walking. And then as the air hunger gets a little bit stronger, start jogging. And as the air hunger gets a little bit stronger, increase the intensity of your jog to a, to a run. And keep going, keep relaxing into your body. And then as soon as you recover, breathe in. But we try and get minimal breathing done for a few breaths, or at least try and get your breathing under control. Wait about 30 seconds and look at the change to the SpO2. Now, if you drop it from normal, which would be 95 to 99% SpO2, once you drop it to below 88%, you're in severe hypoxia. Now, I'll give you an example of that. If you went and did a sprint with your mouth open, you'll drop your SpO2 down to 93%. If you sprint with your mouth closed, you'll drop your SpO2 down to 91%. Whereas if you do breath holding, you'll actually drop your SpO2. Now, it can take a few days of practice, um, but you can drop your SpO2 down to 70% if you want to. Now, it's a bit extreme, and you can feel a little bit disoriented there. Um, and we'd also say you don't have to do them in water and don't do them in water. Now, what we're doing is relatively safe because we don't do hyperventilation beforehand. But do them on land, and you can really disturb your blood acid base balance by simple breath holding. What I noticed was I was able to get down to a very low, you know, oxygen saturation. Oh, it felt low for me to 85%. That's low. But then when I, when I compared it to, say, doing kettlebell swings, where yes. my heart rate was going, I wasn't doing the breath holds with the kettlebell swings, but I got my heart rate up into the region of 150. So you could, yes. somebody could easily think, well, don't I just work out harder to drop the oxygen saturation? And when I was doing the kettlebell swings, it only went down to about 94 um, 93, 94, yes, because yes. you're still breathing. And what was really fascinating about it, yes. you have a very high training effect with a very low training load. That's it. And this is where it's, it's not traumatizing. Yeah. You know, I've been teaching these exercises to five-year-old kids coming in with asthma. And we deliberately had them do strong breath holds. And, you know, we're talking about any age. Like, I've got different books relative to kids and teenagers because I wanted these children breathing through their noses, using their diaphragm, but also the difference we could make to their asthma was incredible. And so these exercises are, are yep. easy to do. There's nothing difficult about them. Now, we do we have a few different variations here and there, and the ones from the book, and um, we've kind of adapted them now since it's amazing. Like, the more you work with something, the kind of more you adapt it. But the book is the basic exercises, um, and using using them for a few minutes a day, and even if it was just during a warm-up, you know, you're doing a warm-up, get some breath holding in. Do your warm-ups with your mouth closed. Like, I was doing the one, one MMA coach during the week there, and I said, why don't you do your grappling? Get the guys taped up during the grappling. That's what I'd be doing with them. So taping the mouth up. Tape their mouths during some of the grappling sessions, yeah. Tape their mouths up during some of the training sessions. Um, and the reason being is because it's, it's forcing them to breathe through their nose, which is going to add an extra load on. Now... If it was an elite athlete, I wouldn't be doing it with 100% of their training sessions. But I'd certainly choose about, say, 40 to 50% of their training sessions and put on the, the tape. 
and have them do it and especially when they're fatigued like to give you an example i was working with some notre dame sprinters they were 400 mm-hmm. meters and they were pretty you know they were very good sprinters um and i was thinking like when's the time that these guys are fatigued well it's going to be the last 10 percent of a race so what i did was during some of their training sessions where they were practicing their 400 meter sprint I stood at about 40 meters from the finish line of the 400 meters. So about 360 meters I stood there. They nose, they sprinted with nose breathing up to 360 meters. And when they seen me at 360 meters, they had to breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, hold their nose and sprint to the finish line without breathing. I wasn't adding the extra load at the start. I was adding the extra load at the end because this is when they're fatigued. And this is when we need to get the body to make adaptations. So if we, <clears throat> let's say, I'm a big cowbell fan and I was doing a little workout before we started the show. Yeah. So if we were to take an example of someone just training on their own, um, yes. you could do your kettlebell swings, but then maybe hold the breath after you finish the swings during that. You could. You have to be careful if you're lifting strong weights. Yeah. Now, there's different theories about it. Blood pressure increases. Um you know, we've seen some some blood pressure increasing the, the systolic over the diastolic went up to 220 over 110. Some people said it wasn't a problem. You know, our medical doctor on our board said generally it's not going to be an issue because it's transient, it's increasing and it's decreasing. So I haven't reached that's I haven't reached a full idea conclusion in terms of breath holding during strength mm. training, such as weightlifting. Because it will increase breath holding and maybe it will increase blood pressure. Maybe in some individuals, they may be a little bit vulnerable to that. Now, there is some people saying it's not a problem. I don't know. So I don't know there. But say if it was if they were doing kettlebell training, what I would say is do it. Try and do as much as you can with your nose, because even breathing through your nose, you're, you're adding an extra load there straight away. And the other thing about breathing through the nose is your nose is directly linked to your diaphragm and you're also adding an extra load because there's a resistance to your breathing by breathing through your nose. You're adding that extra load onto the diaphragm. If you think individuals with kettlebell training, you need good core strength. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one paper showing that there's a relationship between breath hold time and core strength. Mm. Individuals with a low breath hold time have poor core strength. Or you could take it another way. Could you increase core strength by improving breath hold time? Now, it's only one paper. So, again, you can't say it with absolute certainty. But there could be a connection between the two. Um, Like when we're working with athletes, we try and tailor. We look at their existing program. We say, well, where can we fit this in? So the athlete has to look at their own, you know, workout. You're going easy enough during your warm up. Get some nasal breathing and get some breath holding in there. You're going hard at certain times during your, your, your workout. Have your mouth open. And then when you're able to do, you know, if, if there's points there that you add an extra load on, tape up for 10 or 15 minutes. Try and go hard. You can even do high-intensity interval training. 30, 30 seconds all out with your mouth closed, breathing in and out through your nose. Quick recovery. 30 seconds of all out. Quick recovery. Try that. You'd be surprised what you can attain with nasal breathing. Yeah. What I've been doing recently is kind of combining and experimenting a lot of the exercises in your book and some of the exercises I've been using previously. Yes. So if I do a set of, say, 10 kettlebell swings, I'm, I'm just breathing. I'm not holding while I'm swinging. I'm just doing nose breathing. Then I put the kettlebell down. Mm-hmm. I will do kind of 
three sharp breaths out through the nose and then kind of pause for two or three yes. seconds. I'll do that two or three times. Yeah. I feel it kind of, I call it, it's a bit of a cheesy name, but a dump valve breath. Cause I kind of, I, I get some of the air out Yes. and then I go into yes. kind of two, two light breaths, breathe out and hold two light breaths, breathe and hold and kind yes. of playing with different patterns. Yeah. It's a good idea. Uh, so basically during your dump valve breath and what's happening there is that you're getting rid of more CO2. Yeah. Now earlier on I said carbon dioxide is very beneficial, but also bear in mind that carbon dioxide is your stimulus to breathe. So if you want to do a breath hold to achieve a hypoxic effect, you're probably as well off just get rid of a little mm. bit of carbon dioxide before that. Because if if for instance there's a quite a buildup of CO2 in the blood from doing the, the exercise, then you're, it's going to be more difficult to hold your breath to get a hypoxic effect due to the buildup of CO2. So what you're doing is you're having a breath out and then you're breathing out again further to get rid of the CO2. Then you're doing a breath hold. And if you're doing a longer breath hold, for example, then you can have a hypoxic effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's amazing. Actually, you, you, you feel, we're all taught that, and I, was, I could hear someone tell, give someone this advice the other day when I was training jujitsu, but it was people I didn't know, so I didn't want to dive in and sure. like, yeah, take, take a deep breath in. And it's almost that even when I do that, I feel everything tense up in the chest and it's mm. that, you know, breathe, what you, you call it breathing light to breathe right. And you're not saying that when you, yes. you know, from high intensity, but typically on a day-to-day basis and you recommend it when you wake up every morning breathe light to breathe right for 10 minutes just to yes. get your body into that yeah. pattern yes yes and also before sleep um 10 15 minutes before sleep and really what you're doing is you're you're slowing down you're, you're tuning into the breath first of all so you're feeling the slightly colder air coming in and the slightly warmer air leaving and then you're deliberately slowing down the speed of the breath as it comes in and out of the nose. And you're slowing it down sufficiently so that you feel air hunger. And as air hunger builds up, well, you want to have a tolerable air hunger, but you want to be able to sustain that over about three to four minutes. Now, when you practice mm-hmm. that, generally people will feel warmer. And they'll also yep. feel increased watery saliva in the mouth and they'll feel drowsy. So there's a few things happening there. Look at what we've been able to achieve in three to four minutes by influencing your breathing. And what's more, it's not by taking the hard breaths, it's actually doing the opposite. You're slowing down the breath to create air hunger. And as you do that, carbon dioxide increases in your blood and it opens up your your blood vessels. So you can influence your entire blood circulation by reducing the amount of air that you take into your body. So individuals who are, say, hard breathing, they often have cold hands and feet, but they can also experience brain fog they can also experience lighter sleep. You know, and that's, that can be influenced. If you want to have deeper sleep, if you want to warm up your hands, if you want to improve your blood circulation, you want to get your breathing under control. Uh, the other aspect in breathing recovery, if you want, you know, how many athletes now are very mm-hmm. in, engaged with not to be always in that sympathetic tone, that you need to be, you need to be able to recover post-exercise to bring your body from sympathetic into parasympathetic. Well, in three to four minutes, by practicing reducing your breathing, you will activate, you start activating the parasympathetic response. You know that by the increased watery saliva in the mouth. So yogi for, for, you know, hundreds of years have realized that 
typically, you know, activation, they put it down to activation of the parasympathetic response is, is indicated by increased water saliva, just as when we get stressed, our mouth goes dry. So there's two aspects to what we do. One is we, we're doing the breathe light to improve functional breathing patterns, to get diaphragm, nasal breathing, improve blood circulation, help open up the airways. And it also activates the relaxation response. And then we're doing strong breath holds to push the boundaries, to challenge the body, to make adaptations. So it's almost that we're kind of playing with the autonomic nervous system. We're going from relaxation to stress, relaxation to stress. Yeah. And um, people... I think a lot of people don't realize that when you know training is a stress on the body, no matter how you, no matter what kind of training you're doing, it's a stress yes. on the body. And if then you remain in a high stress state, whether it's through work, life, you're worrying about some bills, drinking too much coffee and spiking your cortisol levels, it's not until yes. you can bring those, you know, you bring your body back down to relax, yeah. reduce the cortisol levels, that your you know, your hormone production starts to rebalance and you can actually recover. And it's that I see it as you know, peaks and troughs. We want to hit those peaks in training, but you've got to bring it back down to the trough as well. And it's, yes, I know I'm very guilty of, if I feel like I'm not holding some kind of tension in my body, it's like I'm, I'm weak almost, but actually becoming full, learning to become fully relaxed. I don't need, you don't need to hold that tension. There's no need to be, you know, in that kind of alert state. Yeah. Look at the animal world. The example I used in the book is a running cheetah, you know, a, a cheetah, cats, big cats, how many hours a day do they sleep? Um, they can sleep up to 16 hours per day. But look when they're in full stride catching a deer. You know, they're after their prey. The only muscles that are tense are the muscles that they're using. The entire body is in a state of relaxation because the cheetah, nature has ensured it that the cheetah isn't going to waste our energy unnecessarily. And if we're tensing up, maybe some of our energy is being devoted to, to muscles that, you know, it's a waste of energy. Um, so the animal world, I think, can teach us a lot. And it's really society, Lawrence. Society has gone crazy. Um, we're all caught up in it. And so society wants us to be caught up in it. And I know that's a different story. But, you know, the more productive we are, the better we're doing. We're all competing against each other. You know, it's, you know sometimes we have to take that time out. Um, the individual who pays attention to their breath or at least is bringing attention into the inner body they'll spot it when they get stressed and that's good because then you have the choice then you know you're feeling it and when we're stressed as well we're not really productive a certain amount of stress is good but there's a point when stress levels got too high that productivity is affected and um, you know we could brain freeze etc so i think it's good to have the time out um i think it's normal we've always did it and the animal world does it but modern man doesn't know how to do it yeah, with with the well, we were we were talking about technology before we got on. Yes. I'm looking at my I'm looking at my phone now, and <laughs> it's there's always there's always something to answer, something to do. And I I know I personally fall into that trap of if I'm not doing something, I almost feel guilty, and that ability to kind of bring yes. the stress levels down. And you you talk you talked a little bit about meditation in the book, and I've been meditating now for eight or nine yes. years. And one of the things that I said to you in my email is yes. that. By doing, focusing so much on reducing the breathing rather than a deep breath, or what I thought was a deep breath, it it brings a micro level of awareness to the patterns in the body, and and it allows me, even though I've meditated for eight to nine years, to get to a state of calmness so much quicker than I did before. Yes, yes, 
Yeah. I think I think it's because of I was, you know, having my own mouth open, for example, for 20 years. And mouth breathing was keeping me in a state of agitation. So even if I was to meditate and I was to focus on my breathing, well, on one side, I'm meditating to bring me into relaxation. But on the other side, I have a biochemical and a biomechanical disturbance to my breathing, which is keeping me in agitation. I gave a talk to psychotherapists, one day talk. It was about, I know, about six weeks ago, or it was, it was more, about two months ago. And I said, you're, you're teaching cognitive behavioral therapy, you're teaching counseling, you're not looking at sleep, because a lot of people are coming into me with anxiety, they're exhausted. You're not looking at breathing, because individuals with high stress levels very much are prone to chronic hyperventilation syndrome. And as a result, what has happened here is that stress has changed breathing patterns. And even when the stress has been removed, the poor breathing pattern has been maintained. And it's that poor breathing pattern that's mm. keeping that individual in a physiological state of stress. So the people who should be meditating find it more most difficult. And the reason being is because the people who should really be meditating, um, and I'm not saying this lightly, but the people who should be meditating are people prone to anxiety, are people prone to panic disorders, are people prone to stress. However, you cannot meditate when your mind is agitated. Because if the mind is agitated, it's the mind that's going to take over. And then it gets frustrating. So I can totally identify somebody coming into me with anxiety. And I had many of them over the years. And I'd say, have you meditated? Yes, I have. Do you still do it? No, I don't. But the reason you don't do it is because the mind was just too active. So we have to give different tools there. And actually, yeah. breath tolling and even small breath tolls can be very good at quietening the monkey mind. When we hold our breath, the mind stops. But when we improve sleep and when we improve diaphragmatic breathing also, like it is well documented that the diaphragm stress will change diaphragmatic breathing because we breathe using our upper chest when we're stressed. So there's a feedback from stress to the diaphragm, but there's also feedback from the diaphragm to stress. So we're able to influence our breathing to help improve our stress levels. And it is true, the instruction to take a deep breath is ab absolutely correct. However, the interpretation of it is not correct. All a deep breath means is a light breath taken in through the nose, driven by the diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. And it pr you can prove this. If you were to get a, a pulse oximeter to look at your oxygen saturation, yes. just sitting there with normal breathing, Yes. You, you, your saturation will be at 97%, yes. 96, 97%. You don't need any yes. more oxygen. You've yeah. got more than enough oxygen already, so why do you need to take yes. a bigger breath? Yes. The issue is not about the amount of oxygen in the blood. The issue is getting the oxygen from the blood to the cells. Mm. And for that, you need carbon dioxide. And for normal levels of carbon dioxide, you need good functional breathing yeah. patterns. So the BOLD score is taught to be an indirect measurement of end tidal CO2. So in other words, your BOLD score is measuring your ventilatory response to carbon dioxide. If you've got a reduced response to CO2, you've got light breathing, both during rest, during sleep, and during physical exercise. Yeah. It goes well beyond just sports performance. I want to do a quick ti a time check, Patrick. How are you doing for time? I'm, all, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. You're good. It's all good. good. Yes. Um, so I've got... I wanted to get, if you don't mind, your opinions on some other pop popular or commonly known kind of 
uh, breath training methodologies. Sure. One of them is the training mask. Sure. Sure. I, th I think it's actually a very good device. I think it's an interesting device. Um, the training mask is not a hypoxic mask. We, I bought them years ago when they came out first. I went on a treadmill using pulse oximetry and I tried many different ways and I wasn't able to, by using the mask, I wasn't able to lower my blood oxygen saturation. And I have to say I was a little bit disappointed because the mask was saying that it was simulating altitude training, it was elevation training. And, you know, you, I was changing valves on it 9,000 feet, 15,000 or whatever, 9,000 feet, maybe 12,000 feet. It wasn't doing it. Now, so it, it wasn't doing what it was claiming to do, but what does it do? It's a respiratory muscle training device, and it's adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles, which is good. But also what the mask is doing is that it's pooling carbon dioxide. And that also is going to reduce your ventilatory response to CO2. So it would assist with breathing light. Now, is there a stronger effect? But if you were to combine breathe light and breath holding versus just the training mask, the big advantage with the breath holding is that you get the hypoxic hypercapnic response. With the training mask, you get a hypercapnic. So what I mean there is training mask is increasing CO2 breath holding is dropping and lowering blood oxygen and increasing CO2. So, you know, mm. so there's some similarities with it. Um, but I, th I think it's a good device. I think it's, it's worth using. And obviously fighters get benefit from it so that, you know, it's that extra load. Maybe switch to nasal breathing and see how that does for you. Yeah. I, I've had a training mask for a while and I, I tested it as well to see if it dropped my, my, my oxygen saturation and it didn't. Yes. I think one thing it can do, and maybe this is just for me, it does kind of force you to keep your mouth closed in many ways, which is... It would be good then. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a different, it's a very different training effect is, is what you're saying. Well, it's, it, there's similarities to it. Like it is a hypercapnic training. Mm. It's a hypercapnic respiratory muscle training device. And that's what we're also doing. Um, because it's hypercapnic because it's pooling there's a dead there's a greater dead space when you wear the mask and that's pooling carbon dioxide so you're rebreathing that co2 into your lungs to increase co2 then in the blood uh, you know it's interesting um and i think it would be worth wearing yeah it's another tool and i think it's important for people to yes. know what the tool does and then to have the right tool for what you're trying to apply right yes yeah absolutely so the other the other thing method i wanted to talk about is you'd be familiar with Wim Hof and the Wim Hof method. Yes. And I, I've, yes. I practiced that about a year ago. And it seems like even though it's a very different kind of breathing, you're both trying yes. to achieve the same thing in different ways. Yes. In terms of trying to increase yeah. the oxygen saturation. Beyond, well, not oxygen yes. saturation, yes. but how effective. Body but the PO2. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah correct. Um. The Wim Hof is a very interesting method in terms of it involves hyperventilation. Um, if I can remember totally off the correct top of my, my head, it's 30 hard breaths and then you breathe out and you exhale, you hold your breath and you hold your breath until medium towards strong air hunger. And then you breathe in, you hold for, I think, 10 seconds, 10 to 15 seconds. And then you hyperventilate again for 30 hard breaths and you hold your breath and you repeat that for about to three to five times. So what's happening? During the hyperventilation, mm -hmm. you are exercising your breathing muscles. So you will be adding an extra load onto them. 
during the hyperventilation, you're taking a greater oxygen uptake in the blood. The PO2 is increasing, but the SpO2 isn't increasing. Now, we have to bear in mind, 98% mm -hmm. of oxygen is carried bound by hemoglobin. So 98% of your oxygen is carried by the red blood cells, the protein hemoglobin within the red blood cells. That doesn't increase from doing the Wim Hof method. But it's possible that the amount of oxygen dissolved directly in the blood does. But the amount of oxygen dissolved directly in the blood is 2%. So, so this, is, it's, this is tricky, and I'm not sure if people have come up with a real answer of what's happening here. Um, it did show that the PO2 increased, but the SpO2 didn't increase. Now, what does the hyperventilation do? It blows off a lot of carbon dioxide. And I mean a lot of CO2. And if you get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide, well, that's your drive to, that's your alarm to breathe. So if you get rid of the alarm to breathe, well, then you can keep holding your breath because you're not feeling any urge to breathe because you've just depleted the, the, you know, the, the gas that's the stimulus to breathe. So it allows you to hold your breath for a lot longer. And as you hold your breath for a lot longer, you'll have a greater hypoxic response. So the Wim Hof method is a hypocapnic, which is low CO2, hypoxic effect. Whereas oxygen advantage, we are hypercapnic, which is high CO2 and hypoxic effect. So there's a little bit of a difference there. There are similarities. And an interesting one is the stressor effect that it has in the body. You know, we're so prone to comforts. We're not, ex we're not stressing our body now the way our ancestors were naturally doing it, just by being exposed to the elements. And I think the human body needs stressors because whether you're looking at the theory of hormesis or, you know, that you're stressing the body, that the body is protecting itself. So could you be antagonizing, um, you know, the immune system and reducing inflammation by stressing the body so that the immune system is able to function better to reduce inflammation? And this was Cox's paper by using the Wim Hof method um, that, you know, people with rheumatoid arthritis, irritable bowel syndrome, etc. Now, over the years when I was working with breath holding for health, which I did for two that I still do, but the emphasis, we've seen people coming in with different complaints and we've seen them make progress that their symptoms were reducing. But we weren't aware of what's happening. I actually thought it was because we were increasing the amount of oxygen delivery to the cells. Um, so, but it could be the stress, the stress response from the breath tolling may also have been doing it. Yeah. I think people need an acute physical stress, uh -huh. you know, it's regularly rather than a chronic psychological stress all the time, which is what yes. people most commonly have. Yes. And that's what I would agree with you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, um, we can get too comfortable. You can, <clears throat> pardon me. We can get up in the morning, jump in the car drive to work, yeah. sit down all day. Yes. And there's this, yeah. there can be a stress, a low-level anxiety that's kind of buzzing around. But we've, yes. we, we very rarely get out of our comfort zones and kind of shock the system yes. in a way that, you know, if you, you can feel, I'll, I'll use an example. Uh, last year when I competed at the World World Masters Tournament, uh, Jiu-Jitsu Tournament, I, I lost my first fight. Uh -huh. I lost my first fight this year, actually. But um, So I got knocked out in the first round. But I was sitting there after the fight in the stand, and I, I was beaten. F physical tiredness aside, kind of the emotional intensity running through my body at that point is something that was. I said to mm -hmm. myself, "This, this is. It, it sucks that I lost, but I, I feel so alive right now 
that emotional intensity. Sure. People don't experience that on a day-to-day basis. Sure. And, you know, absolutely, I think, you know, you know hard, intense exercise, something like jujitsu, or when you start doing these kind of, you know, reduced breathing techniques and try to st- simulate high altitude, there's, I think you get that kind of emotional mm. intensity from it as well. Um, maybe I'm kind of going on a tangent slightly, but it's, you, ha- you have no choice but to focus on nothing else but your breath at that point. And the way that your body and your mind feels after it is, I think, maybe akin yes. to what you're talking about, about in terms of yes. that, you know, acute stress. Yes. No, I think it does. Um, when you do, when you hold your breath, there's an interesting thing that happens. You'll often, if you do a strong breath hold, your hands will often feel cold. And what's happening there is that your, your peripheral blood circulation is shutting down, or at least it's constricting. The blood, blood vessels in the hands are constricting because the body wants to make sure that the brain and heart is getting sufficient oxygen. So even though your blood oxygen saturation is dropping, the body is going to make sure that the brain gets sufficient oxygen. So it increases blood flow to the brain. So you really do feel that you can feel jelly legs. You can feel different effects happening. Um, and as you say, the mind goes quiet. And that's why, like, if I've got somebody coming in with, to me with panic attacks, I don't get them to do meditation. I, at least I don't start off with them. Yeah. I actually get them doing very small breath holds. And what I'll do is I'll simply start with breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your nose, hold your nose and walk to the wall. And the walk, the wall might be only five paces away. So I get them to repeatedly, what I want to do is generally build up their resilience, but I'm using breath holding to build up their resilience. So it's almost that we're giving them a little stress, a teaspoon, a teaspoon of stress. And that's then getting their body then to build up. And of course, with panic attack, you know, the old trick was the brown paper bag. Well, all that was happening there was the individual was hyperventilating. They were getting rid of too much CO2. The bag was there to trap carbon dioxide to bring it back into the lungs. Well, I'm saying to the person with panic attack, we have to improve your resilience. You know, we change your breathing patterns. We reduce your ventilatory response to CO2. Your breathing is lighter. And then when you get into a stressful environment, you're able to cope with it better. And that's what, you know, it's... The human body, the intelligence of the human body is there. We don't always tap yeah. into it. And I think part of it is because our healthcare system doesn't want us to tap into it. Um, if I look at nasal obstruction, it's been written about since 1923 that if you hold your breath, you'll actually open up your nose. So in 1923, you hold your breath, you open up your nose. In 1909, the, the journal for dentists called Dental, Cosm- Dental Cosmic yeah. They spoke about the negative effects of mouth breathing in children. That's going back 109 years. But nobody has let it out into the information. This information hasn't got out into the general public. Because if you think there is a $100 million or whatever amount of money, there's, it could be a billion-dollar industry, the whole antihistamines, nasal decongestions. When I'm giving presentations, I gave a presentation in Toronto there. It was about three months ago. I was talking about... You know, this paper has been a paper has been around since 1923 that if you if you hold your breath, you open up your nose. And we have to think of the significance of this. 60 million Americans have rhinitis. They've nasal stuff. Many. 60 million. Wow. And these individuals are twice as likely to have sleep problems. Now, I had nasal stuffiness and I had sleep problems because if you have your mouth open, your sleep is adversely affected. There is a multi multi million dollar industry selling antihistamines nasal decongestions yep. um 
you know, steroids to, to open up the nose, nasal operations. And the, the wonderful thing about the human body is if we could tap into it, simply hold your breath, do it five times. And I'll give you that instruction so your listeners can try it. Ask them, first of all, check one nostril and breathe through it. And then check the other nostril and they breathe through it. So they get a sense of how open or closed their nostrils feel. And then they take a normal breath in through their nose, a normal breath out through the nose, pinch the nose, hold the nose, walk around. And walk around until you feel a medium to strong air hunger. And then let go but breathe in through your nose. And then breathe normally for about a half a minute to a minute. And repeat it. And do that five times. Hold your breath for a medium to strong air hunger. Take a little rest. And then hold your breath again, medium to strong air hunger. Take a rest. Do it five times, and for the vast majority of people, the nose is open. Now, what I would say is there is a caveat. Mm -hmm. Don't do it if you're pregnant. Don't do it if you have cardiovascular issues, type 1 diabetes, if you have any kind of serious medical complaints. Um, you know, So that exercise is generally for people with relatively good health. But that's an example of you're holding your breath, you stop breathing. Carbon dioxide increases in your blood, and it's taught that carbon dioxide is the gas responsible for opening up the nasal passages. Now, again, 1909, Dental Cosmos or Dental Cosmic. And you'll find these papers, these publications online. And they talked about when you have the mouth open, the chin recedes, the mouth, the, the teeth are crooked. You've got a high, narrow palate. It, it causes a longer face. And again, all of this information is out there, but it's not getting into the hands of the general public. And that's what I want to do. I was that kid with the mouth open. And what's more, if you're a child with your mouth open and your sleep is affected, you've got 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. You know, that information isn't put out there. So it's not just about affecting children, but it's also affecting adults because even in offices, whatever work we're doing, no matter what we do, we need to have the focus to be productive. And if we're not getting good sleep, good quality sleep, and if we're not breathing correctly to get sufficient oxygen and blood flow to the brain, we're not going to be productive and we're not reaching our full potential. So I want to put that information out there because nobody told me in 20 something years of mouth breathing, nobody said, Patrick, breathe through your nose. And I think it's because it's so simple. It's so common sense. But then again, what's common isn't it's common sense isn't always that common you know how did you first come across the, the whole idea of reduced breathing there was a russian doctor back in the 50s and he discovered a connection between he was looking at mainly for health mm -hmm. and he noticed that people who were getting sick they started to breathe harder so he, he wondered was it their sickness you know as their health deteriorated was that was that causing them to breathe harder or he was thinking, was there harder breathing feeding back into mm. the sickness? So he was wondering, was there a feedback loop there? So he started experimenting with some of his patients, getting them to slow down their breathing. And they were able to recover from some of their symptoms. Now, so that came out, and part of his research as well was during the Soviet uh, the space race, in terms of what was the ideal composition of oxygen in, you know, in capsules mm -hmm. going up for, for astronauts, etc. So he did some research with that and he developed different patterns. So his, his work was focused entirely, his name was Dr. Konstantin Buteko. And his work was, was focused entirely about reaching what was the optimum and ideal oxygen for the human being. 
So when it came to the West, when the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, it came to the West in the mm. early 1990s. It got to the UK in 1994. The BBC did a very good documentary, QED. It was an investigative program. And they got three of the more severe, most severe asthmatic patients in a hospital in Scotland. They got them to do the technique for five days. And within five days, their symptoms and their condition had remarkably improved. Now, the doctor, the consultant that was involved with that, I think he was a little bit dumbfounded. If you were to watch the documentary, you'll see it on, up on YouTube. Um, and asthma, it affects 5.6 million people in the UK. And kids are dying with this condition. Adults die of it. Nobody's telling these kids or adults, breathe through your nose. They get an inhaler. They you get know, drugs. Get an inhaler. But, in, you know, an inhaler is great. It's treating inflammation, but it's not addressing the breathing pattern disorders. And the other thing I'll say is, People with asthma, they tend to be tired all the time. So in the normal Western population, 10% of the, the normal Western population have asthma. And it's similar enough in athletic populations. They can even increase in athletic, in athletic populations because the athlete is breathing so hard that it's sucking and cooling. It's sucking moisture out of the airways, causing a drying and cooling effect. So the airway is narrow. And as their airway is narrow, then they start breathing harder. But as they breathe harder... Mm -hmm their airways narrow more. So that's why athletes have to be really aware of it. How hard are they breathing? Uh, when we have an athlete coming into us, if they have any predisposition towards asthma, I say, listen, you have to get your bolt score up above 25 seconds minimum. Otherwise, your asthma is going to hold you back. Your, your narrowing of your airways is going to hold you back. Um, and again, once, once people know the connection, you can start bringing this into your everyday life. Yeah, It's not that difficult. It all it all seems to circle back to reducing the breathing and the bolt score. Yes, are the two main yes. components. Yes, and, and breath holding as well. So, say reducing your breathing, so changing your everyday breathing patterns, breathing through your nose, using your diaphragm with light breathing, practicing it to increase your bolt score, and then the other aspect of it is using breath holding to challenge the body to improve your maximum yeah. breathlessness test. So there's two aspects to it, um, but yeah, it's like it's not it's not a magic bullet, it's not a cure all. But I think for sports performance, you can help with sleep, with breathing, with functional movement, with stabilization of the spine, and also improving the buffering capacity to mm. delay lactic acid and fatigue. You know, and I, that's what, what I was trying to do over the past. I started writing the Oxygen Advantage in 2011, 2012. I finished it in around, say, 2016, and then by the time it came, went to publication, etc., yeah. is trying to put those dots together. I wanted to look at breathing from every angle, um, you know, and to take what was the best that we can do for, for that application. And you, you said earlier that well, you know, the more you use these techniques, the more you learn, the more you adapt them. Is there, any, yes. on, is there anything on the horizon for oxy, oxygen advantage that, you know, is, you know, maybe you're going to further develop and further adapt these techniques? Uh, what we did was I, about a year ago, I came up with an 11, 11 workout. I wanted a workout that would last for about 35 to 40 mm -hmm. minutes. Um, and this would be where you start off with easy breathing and it, it brings you up and then you spike with very challenging stuff. And then you come back down again and then it brings you up and you spike and you come back down and the whole purpose of it was a suite of 11 exercises where you go from one exercise mm. into the other 
and each exercise will impart a different application. So by the time that you've done the 35 minutes, you've had an entire breathing workout. Now, to the point that a lot of people feel hindered with physical exercise due to excessive breathlessness, disproportionate breathlessness. And people might necessarily want to go to a gym because they feel too breathless if they do it, but you could be doing something that's totally within your control. So I had an idea, you know, and I work when I'm working with our instructors, that's what we do. And we put them through, we put the athletes through it. And I've got a webinar even on this evening. We will do that. So that's one aspect of it. A different products is another aspect. I've got belts that are used at developing diaphragmatic strength. So it's called Buteco belt um, without plugging it or anything, but basically no, it's a belt. Plug away, plug away. It's a, it's a belt that you push, you put it you, you put it on your midriff, and the whole aspect of the belt is just to bring your attention to your diaphragm so that you're breathing against it because a lot of people, they can't necessarily connect with the diaphragm. You can't get in there. Now, if you were wearing a shirt, it's about four buttons down. And your diaphragm, it's like a sheet of leather. It's dome-shaped, mm. and it separates. It's just located at the base of your ribs, basically. So, you know, it's separating the thorax from the, the, the diaphragm. But my primary reason for that was people didn't have the time to do the breathe light exercises. But then I'm thinking, well, these guys are on computers all day. Why not wear a belt? So they wear a belt underneath their clothing, and the belt is exerting a pressure against their breathing. So they're breathing against resistance, so it's forcing them to breathe light. Mm. So oh, that's cool. I have to kind of look at modern life. <clears throat> People don't have time, so we have to do what we can, you know. Have you have you considered using any kind of um, electric sensors that someone could place, and then maybe it connects to the maybe they place it on the stomach, and it connects to a smartphone, and maybe it sends them sends them an alarm when they're not breathing properly. Or, or an electric shock might be a bit better. An electric shock would be a better one. You could, they, they do that, right? They have wristbands where people can, they can yeah, shock you. Yeah, I think there work. is. You know, it's, there's new inventions that are coming on. I'm not involved with them, but people contact me with different inventions. That There's a pair of trousers coming out that you wear, you wear a pants, and the pants yeah. is monitoring your breathing, and wow. it's giving feedback, and it's recording everything. My only thing is I'm not technological, you know. Yeah. This is about the limit of my technology, you know, in terms of doing a Skype call or um, <laughs> a podcast. So it's, it's just, I, it's, I suppose it's not where my interest lies. Yeah. You know, we yeah. came out with an app with a, few, with a few years ago and then we realized, well, you have to keep on updating the app. This is OK. Well, let's forget about that one. So, yeah, so that's where it's at now. So my whole thing is I want to it's really in developing the breath itself and what we're working with. And I think. If we introduce too much technology as well, mm. it's kind of taking our attention out of the, the mind and out of out of the body. And, you know, we're putting our attention outwards as opposed to bringing it inwards. Um, so I want people to uh, bring their attention inwards as opposed to having it going outwards. But that's where it's at. Technology. You will see more and more, um, especially in the area of sleep, because nobody is looking at minute ventilation. Nobody is looking at breathing really <clears throat> In terms of somebody wearing a shirt during sleep where it can monitor all the breathing parameters mm -hmm. and when i'm talking about sleep i'm talking about obstructive sleep apnea mm -hmm. and the reason being is because your nose is directly linked to your diaphragm and your diaphragm is directly linked to the upper airway dilator muscles so the muscles here in the throat which are designed to keep the airway open 
they are influenced by diaphragmatic breathing. But if you're sleeping with your mouth open, you're breathing using your chest, and as a result, the upper airway dilator muscles can be lazy. They don't do their work, so the airway collapses and the individual is obstructive mm. sleep apnea. So I think somebody who comes up with a shirt that can monitor that and that can influence diaphragmatic breathing, I think they could be onto something. There's something very commercial yeah. there. Sleep apnea is a massive mm-hmm. problem. It's affecting over 50 years of age, 43% of males over 50 in the United States, 43% over 50 wow. years of age. It's responsible for about 20% of road traffic accidents. Pilots, I hate to say, yeah. and I fly all the time, pilots are falling asleep. There's been a couple of cases, if you Google it, there's a couple of cases whereby the two pilots fell asleep, the, the captain and the first officer, both of them, both of them <laughs> and they overshot the runway by a half an hour. So they missed the do we know which, do, do you know which airlines I we do, can avoid know, it? No, you'll easily get it. You'll get it. If you Google it, pilots falling asleep, um, you'll see it. So that's kind of, that's a little bit uh, nerve wracking. And a lot of that is, that's down, that can be down to obstructive sleep apnea. And, you know, I was talking to other people, we have a habit of looking, what's the state of health of the pilot when he's getting onto the plane? Because I'm sitting there and I'm saying, okay, I don't want this guy <laughs> getting on who's going to be prone to obstructive sleep apnea. He's going to fall asleep, be, you know, be um, in the cockpit. I want somebody that's looking the part and it's not by the way you don't have to be obese to have obstructive sleep apnea just kind of it can affect people with with slender people as well but yeah, yeah, i just yeah. have that habit that habit of looking at people yeah yeah so if you're a nervous flyer guys get a get a copy of oxygen advantage <laughs> and give it to the pilot before you get on <laughs> that's good there. um i've got a couple of uh, listener questions and this yeah. is from a friend of mine uh danny danny brayson He's he's a heart health researcher, so I hope you understand this question because I may not. It gets quite technical, um, so I'm going to mm-hmm. read it out. So, so we've talked about the high altitude stuff um, that was interesting, but one of the things he talked when he's, he's got two questions. One of the first questions was around, you know, high altitude. Depending on the research that you look at, if you go to high altitudes, the the, the effects are, are are limited. But not 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 limited, but diminish over time. But I suppose with I don't want to answer the question for you, but intuitively I would yes. think that you know the high altitude simulation that we can do, you can you don't you can do it all the time. So even if well, you've got to keep yes. at it to to maintain. Yeah, you do. You have to keep at it. Um, from a from an aerobic point of view, we wouldn't we wouldn't achieve a hundred percent what can be achieved at high altitude. Yeah. But the problem with having to train at high altitude is that. The effect will wear off after okay. about two weeks. But high altitude is specifically a hypoxic stimulus to increase oxygen mm. carrying capacity. But when you're doing breath holding, there's more than hypoxic stimulus. You've got a hypercaptic response. You've got increased improving respiratory muscle strength. But you're also subjecting the body to an increased feeling of breathlessness. So there's a psychological thing going on. You know, you're disturbing the blood acid base balance. So I think... In terms of breath holding, you'll probably get more out of it. Now, I don't want to say that without a whole lot of backup and research, but I've looked at the research in terms of what we're doing um, because a lot of research is coming from Europe. Mid-Sweden University did a lot of work in terms of breath holding, and also Paris 13 University has done a lot of work in terms of breath holding, and more specifically, breath holding on the exhalation, and the technique that we've been working with for almost 20 years. So I think there's a good bit of research that we can look at 
and we can compare it to the effects of the you know the live high train low model um for high altitude mm. so high altitude as well it's not going to be for everybody um it's expensive yeah you gotta get you that. know if you were living at high altitude you can't train up there necessarily because you're deconditioned because the air is too thin so you're getting the benefits from improved blood at high altitude but you your muscles decondition because you're not going to reach your full maximum intensity during training mm. so that's why researchers come up with live high and then you know the following morning come down to high come down to low altitude train low so live high train low train at low altitude so you can you can push your body to get muscle condition um yeah it's it's interesting but it's not going to be for everybody and um thank you thank you for that and the next the next question that there's quite a few from Danny, but um, but he's re- he's re- he was really interested and really excited about this. Uh-huh. And what the, the next thing that he talks about is about uh, you know cyclical training loads. So we talked about MMA fighters recently, and if obviously if they've got a training camp, they'll you know they'll train up to the fight, they'll peak, then they'll drop off, rest, and recover, and then kind of build back up to the next fight. Do you recommend any kind of cyclical yes. type of um, you know application of the, of the breathing methodologies? I think diaphragmatic breathing is very important. Um, it's been shown to reduce oxidative stress. It's been shown to be beneficial post-recovery. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of getting an individual to recover in between training, the diaphragmatic breathing would be very, very important. But also, coming back to the basics, look at sleep. If you can improve sleep quality, if you have an athlete who is prone to sleep disorder breathing, their body is going to be in a state of sympathetic activation. Sleep is when we should be relaxing. It should be when we're having a recovery. But if individuals have sleep problems, they can be stopping breathing. They can be having resist reduction to the flow of their breath called hypopneas. And this is not allowing them to get their full recovery. So again, there's a man in the UK called Nick Littlehales, and he's a sleep coach. He was first, he was first recruited by Alex Ferguson. So his whole job was to come in with premiership footballers and look at their sleep to get the most out of sleep. And you could think of why would he why would he bring? Why would you employ somebody just to help premiership footballers just to sleep better? Well the reality is these guys, what are they paid? They're paid massive amounts of money every week. And if they don't have good night's sleep, that's money down the drain. So that was money well spent. I think athletes really need to look at their sleep. Um, a significant proportion of them do have sleep issues and that's not going to let them get into to full recovery i think it's really important sleep quality not just quantity nasal breathing like we use mm. tape i tape up i have all my guys tape up i taped them up training but i have them wear paper tape across their lips during sleep that's the one thing i haven't done is is the taping of the mouth yet and i have I've got a slightly, I, I need to do it. I've got a slightly deviated septum because I got hit in the nose. Yes. As I got about eight, 18, 19. Um, and I tend to get le- the left nostril. I can, I can feel it now when I talk a lot. It blocks up or when I sleep. Uh, I need to try the tape. Yeah. Is there any, any particular tape you'd recommend? There's now tapes in the market, which is interesting. Like lipsealtape.com is, uh, you know, lipsealtape.com is a tape that's on the market, which is actually very good. Traditionally, we were using 3M Micropore tape. You buy it in a chemist or a drugstore. It cost you a few dollars. Um, and you just put a tab in it, and it was one-inch Micropore tape. You just keep it over the lips. And, you know, so there, there's different products now specifically for, for mouth taping. 
and they work. My my wife, my wife is when I get the tape and I put it on during the sleep. My wife is just going to shake her head and say, "What? <laughs> what the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> she's kind of used to it. She's she's seen all the weirdness over well, the last. You know, so many I learned years. if you've got a deviated septum and if you were yeah. hard breathing with the mouth open, there's a little bit of a chance that there might have been a little bit of snoring going on there. Maybe. So in, in terms <laughs> of, so she has a choice there: <clears throat> tape up or listen to snoring. Oh, there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll tell her that. I'll tell her that. Um, but with, so with, with, with these breathing techniques and to continue with Danny's questions, would you, um, would you recommend you can just do them constantly throughout the year or are there times where you may want to, okay, leading up to a competition, we will focus more on breath training, but then reduce it down after that competition, the volume of the breath training. Uh, No, what I what I try to do is we try and continue with it because we don't know how the athlete is breathing in between. What's their everyday life like? Are they talking and are they talking a lot during the day? Like individuals are even like we're talking quite a bit here. Um, I've got a webinar later on in the evening as well as two hours more of talking, and yeah. that will fundamentally affect your breathing. And any of your listeners who who talk for a living, they're tired after a day's talking. And the reason that they're tired is because they're breathing, their talking has increased their breathing, and of course their breathing volume by increasing is reducing blood flow and oxygen delivery to the mm-hmm. brain because they're breathing harder. You know, it's okay to breathe hard if there's an increase in your metabolic activity. That's fine. So during physical exercise, but again, you don't want to be breathing too hard for the given level of physical exercise. So if you have an athlete and, you know, they're working and they're doing every normal everyday living, um, if their breathing is being affected, they're as well off trying to bring it into their way of life. I don't know if people will, will continue doing breathing exercises indefinitely. You know, that's not what, what I want. I want people to realize fully the connection between their breath and their performance. And, you know, always to have that at the, at the back of your mind. It's like diet. You're MMA fighters. You know, are they going to start eating junk food or are they going to have a reasonably good diet because they know the effect of food with performance? Well, breathing is the same. Um, Good diet and good breathing patterns, you know. Now, there may be time that, of course, that diet lapses and they they go on a binge and breathing lapses and they go on a binge of incorrect breathing, but then you come back to it. Um, But I think that's normal enough. I would say, though, I think the easiest thing to do is to get mouth taping during sleep and get in a few breath holds. You know, the, the quickest thing would be to do a few strong breath holds, five five breath holds with a minute's rest, um, do it twice a day. And I know, you know, people might, people might say that's overdoing it. It's not. We've been, what we've always prescribed, 10 repetitions. So you do five breath holds maybe about 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the day before lunch and then do five breath holds before dinner or later on in the evening, you know, and do them as part of your, your, if you're doing a warm up, why not get a few breath holes into the warm up? Yeah. I, I need to start when I'm, when I'm teaching, when I'm teaching jujitsu classes, I may need to start bringing in some of these exercises. And, um, I, I quite often, if I'm, if I'm just you're working in the afternoon and I've had lunch and I've, you know, I've been on, a, I've been in a meeting and I feel a bit sluggish, the tendency could be to re- reach for caffeine, but I know that, you know, I'll, I'm like a one cup yes. of coffee guy. One cup of coffee a day, mm-hmm. person. Any more than that, I get too stressed. But I'll use these breathing techniques. I'll go and walk mm-hmm. back and forth in the garden and do the breath holds five, six times, and it, it, it's it's yes. like it's like natural caffeine almost. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And it, it, it makes people alert. And I always ask people after they do a few strong breath holds, um, because I want them to, to realize the connection between the change of their physiology. And the vast majority of people will say that they feel alert when they do strong breath holds. Now, if you do reduce breathing, mm. you'll feel a bit drowsy. So one is activating the, the parasympathetic response and the other is activating the sympathetic. So know when to use it. <laughs> exactly. Don't do strong breath holds lasting before bed. Yeah. Do reduce breathing. Yeah. So I've got so two two more questions from from the listeners. Then I, I want to I want uh-huh. to talk about the seminars and the kind of the webinars that you do online. Um, but one is, I think we may have answered this, but this is um, a, a question from a, a good friend, Adam Simon, and he's asking: Does training without oxygen make us more efficient when we use the oxygen to fuel our exercise? I think we may have answered that. Uh, but really what we're doing is we're we're doing breath holding to subject the body to intermittent hypoxia so that we're lowering oxygen desaturation for brief periods of time. Now what that's doing, it's causing a hypoxic and also hypercaptic response. I think the key there is improving the buffering capacity. And your buffering ability is your ability to neutralize hydrogen ions, mm. which is implicated in causing fatigue. So you're increasing by subjecting the body to a strong acidosis, the buffering capacity inside in the muscle is improved. So that will delay the release then of hydrogen ion from the muscle compartment into the blood. Um, And that in turn then, so probably the basis of this is that you can stay aerobically for longer, um, that you can delay lactic acid, you can delay fatigue, you can improve your, your anaerobic threshold you can improve the ventilatory threshold. The ventilatory threshold is the point is where your breathing is fairly level. And then at some point, your breathing increases um, disproportionately to your, your muscle activity. So you can change those parameters. But you would want to be doing, say, five breath holds, a minimum of five breath holds per day, every day, or if you were doing five breath holds twice a day to do that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And then the I, 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 by the way, I'm going to need to go back and listen to all of this because this, this goes so much deeper than, than some of the stuff in the book. It's, it's incredible, actually. Um, but the last question then coming from Danny, and he's saying he's playing, playing, playing devil's advocate. Is it, mm-hmm. and maybe it's hard to break this out, but do we, do we know, is there a difference? Let me rephrase that. He's asking if, is it the oxygen work that we're doing or the reduction in the oxygen work Um that's having the effect or is it the strengthening of the diaphragm muscles, the strengthening of the breathing muscles that has a bigger benefit? What do we, do we know? Is it, is it possible to even break that stuff out? It's, it's not, it's not possible to isolate them because as you do a breath hold, the two effects are happening simultaneously. Um, now I wouldn't think though, I would think that, you know, improving respiratory muscle fatigue is going to impart different benefits. Basically you're going to have improved respiratory muscle strength and you'll have reduced diaphragmatic fatigue versus when you are doing breath holding, you're targeting more the blood acid base balance. You're, you're targeting more the buffering capacity. Mm. So I think, you know, when you're, you're, so you're doing one exercise or one suite of exercises that you could actually isolate what's happening there. Um, but in terms of improving sports performance, what's it down to? You know, it could be a combination of things. There can be even a psychological yep. thing happening here. We push the individual into a strong feeling of breathlessness. So 
you know, you're training the brain that the body can go harder. And this could be down to the central governor theory, which was developed by Tim Noakes. And, you know, it's not a new theory. It's been around since about 1924. That the reason that we're training harder is to teach the brain that we can push ourselves harder as individuals. So what we're doing is we're doing breath holding because ultimately what is the brain monitoring? Well, the brain is going to be monitoring um, the amount of oxygen that's reaching the heart, maybe diaphragmatic fatigue, maybe the stress that's on the breathing muscles. Well, what we're doing is we're putting the stress on the, all of those areas to, to change the breathing, you know, from the central governor to So any amount of adaptations, difficult to isolate them. And the body is a complex system as well. It's never, it's never one answer. You've got to look at the whole system as a whole, whether it's I'm doing some work with, you know, lower back pain at the moment. It's never just your hamstrings or it's never just your hip flexors. It's going to be your, it's going to be your glutes. It's going to be your core strength. It's going to be your foot strength. It's going to be all of these things combined. So it's never going to be just one factor. Are you still there, Patrick? Yeah, no, I'm still there. I, the last, uh, since you started talking, it just pixelated. Oh, apologies. I think it's, well, it, it, it's just my ramblings. So people want to hear you rather than me. So I can cut that out. In, I can cut that out in um, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to talk about your kind of your, your webinars. You said you've got a webinar tonight, but and, and just talk about, you know, where people can reach you, the, the, the products that you've got. I think you've got one-on-one online coaching programs um, for, you know, personal use, but also you do coaching certificates as well. You train people. And I think tonight, actually, I've seen, I've seen the web webinar advertised. I think that's tonight, right, is when you're kicking off the online coaching programs. It is, yeah. So the first one, um, I travel an awful lot to the point I, I could be traveling two to three countries a month. And it's not that I've, people then can't reach me, of course, because I'm limited. There's only one of me. So using technology, and even though I was given out about it earlier, we, we do online webinars whereby we teach instructor training. So instructors mm -hmm. sign in for about seven by two hours, but then they have their the online training portal and they have an exam to do and they've got case studies. So we're working with them. Um, so they start tonight. And then, for example, then we have also online courses, clinics with, with athletes who want to sign up. They do a master class, it's two hours. There's DVD sets um, there's different things. So even, you know, our YouTube channel, we explain quite the, quite the science. There's a number of videos there which will explain the science of what's going on. And we've put up quite a few abstracts and papers as well on the website, oxygenadvantage.com. Yeah. So I think there's something for everybody, you know, regardless of pocket. And they're not, you know, relatively, we keep the prices down pretty low to make sure to reach out to as many people as possible. Yeah, it, it's uh, <clears throat> from a personal perspective. Well, it's about how many books have you written? At least nine. I've nine books written, and I've got two in the pipeline. Yeah. It's the Oxygen Advantage. I've got one. Close your mouth now. That was my one of my first books. Well, but basically, that was written back We've in. We both got a copy. Oh, you have We're it there as well. Showing a copy over the camera. <laughs> I think that could have been the first first book. The that I bought actually. It was. Yeah. So that's been really, you know, popular in terms of for people with asthma and hay fever and nasal congestion. And that was written back in 2003 or 2004. And I was writing books then. The Oxygen Advantage took the longest, but now it's gone into Chinese and Taiwanese and Japanese yeah. and German and Spanish. So it's great. And it's great to see it. It's happening, you know. Yeah, I, I, guys, I, I would I would tell people, you know, 
go on at the very least go on by oxygen advantage it's it's absolutely going to change the way that you think about breathing and it feels like well you've been on a 20-year journey to get to this point but the way oxygen advantage is taking off it seems like you're relatively early on i think in the trajectory so it's really interesting and exciting to speak to you at this time and you know see that actually happening Mm -hmm. yeah no i think so i think at the moment it's the early adopters if if that's the terminology that people use or innovators who are using it and they're finding out about this it's the people who want to get the the gains and you know after some point when when enough people have done that it reaches into mainstream so Mm. hopefully at some point i think you know it's applicable to everybody none of us should be going around with our mouths open uh especially during sleep and and during wakefulness and we need to get the information out to kids you know yeah. that's ultimately what it's about yeah um and then then we'll be tapping into reaching our full potential oh i if we could keep going i think we agree on so many of these so many of these points <laughs> i'm gonna well, we'll uh-huh. let, let's wrap up the recording stay on for a minute afterwards and we can just uh you know to to wrap up there as well but patrick mm-hmm. thank you so much for taking the time it's it's great i know you've got a busy schedule with um you know travel and you know all of the work that you're doing i i know people are going to be fascinated with this subject so guys head over to oxygenadvantage.com um follow them on instagram at oxygen advantage and look for oxygen advantage on amazon i think do yourself a favor you know and and, and get a copy of that book it's going to make it's really you know, i've been practicing meditation for the last eight or nine years and heavily focused on breathing techniques throughout my jiu-jitsu career and you know it's it's central to a lot of the stuff that i talk about and it's completely transformed the way that i look that i look at breathing so you know i think you'll really enjoy it uh, and, and and last lastly guys um you know head over to bjjstrength.com take a look at all the articles and um the strength and conditioning pre-built programs that we have available there um, if you if you've liked listening to this podcast, guys, you know take take the time to to rate and review on iTunes and whatever other channel that you're using. But you know, with that, again, Patrick, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome, Lawrence. Thanks so much. It was a great chat.